A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Stop. Kiki mai kake mai, and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnē. Later on, we'll hear about a world-first attempt to drill deep into an active underwater volcano. But first, historian Jonathan West did his PhD research on the Otago Peninsula. It's a remarkable tongue of land, jutting out from Dunedin City and flanking Otago Harbour. The albatrosses, penguins and other wildlife that live and breed there are a drawcard for visitors from around the world. Jonathan has turned his research into a book, The Face of Nature, an environmental history of the Otago Peninsula. The Face of Nature paints a picture of the peninsula's original rich biodiversity and then charts human impact, both Māori and European, to the turn of the 20th century. I catch up with Jonathan to find out about some of the many things he covered in this intriguing history. I wanted to try and look at how the peninsula had been before people arrived, but then to look at how people had approached their new environment, first Polynesian Māori arrivals, then Europeans, the rest of the world, how that experience had changed people how that change had occurred both through the evolution of attitudes and the need to shape a new economy as the world around them changed. So it's a very particular geography, isn't it? It's very uh, windswept and wild on the ocean side of the peninsula. It's got a sheltered, gentle harbour on the other side. Yeah, and that geography has really shaped its settlement. By and large, people have lived on the the harbour side and the outer coast has become almost increasingly wild. When the first Polynesians arrived on the Otago Peninsula, when was that and what did they find? Using archaeology as your guide, the first settlement of New Zealand is pinned reasonably tightly these days uh, to about 1280 AD. That fact, coupled with the theory that New Zealand and, and even the outlying islands were settled in an extraordinarily quick starburst where there was an arrival and very quick dispersal of people around the coast so quickly that really archaeology cannot distinguish the sequence and so all we know is that they there weren't that many people in the early arrivals but they moved really really fast astonishingly quickly and clearly with uh, what can only be called really political motivations to name and claim and gain territory really fast. And to cut a long story short, the Otago Peninsula is one of those sites which, if not as early as the Wido Bar, is so close in time as to be indistinguishable. And what was the environment they found there? Was it a forest-covered environment? The peninsula was certainly forested. Uh, it was a um, podocarp broadleaf forest. It was a very diverse 
range of vegetation because of the diverse landscape? Because the landscape ranges from, of course, being coastal and you have estuaries and you have cliffs and you have white sand beaches, all of which are backed by a different range of vegetation. And some of that rises quite rapidly into hills that are quite salt laden on the outer coast. On the inner coast, much sunnier. You have uh, a range of soils. Um, a lot of that vegetation was sustained by seabird guano. New Zealand, when first discovered, had an extraordinary range and abundance of seabirds. There were uh, many different kinds of albatrosses and penguins and, and any type of bird you can imagine, and the, but the abundance of them was several orders of magnitude greater than we see today, so that you would see square kilometres of sea covered in great crowding flocks of birds. In other respects also... Um, Kākāpō were one of the most abundant and common birds, which you would never think now. You certainly get the impression that it was a place full of potential food for those early Māori, you know, marine mammals. There were seals, there were whales, there was fish and seafood, there were seabirds, there were land birds like moa as well. Yes, and obviously the marine mammal densities would have been really high. It's such great habitat for, for seals. So those early Māori found a land of plenty. Can you quickly sort of step me through the next few hundred years? What happened once people decided to stick around on Otago Peninsula? When Māori first arrived in the New Zealand, they were really attracted to leeward and southern New Zealand, where there was a f- concentration of moa, uh, and where even perhaps more importantly, there were concentrations of seals. And Māori based themselves uh, at the mouths of rivers where you could both harvest adjacent seal colonies and travel upriver, killing more and other large birds as you went and then floating them back downstream to your base camp. And you would uh, live in such a base camp for a couple of generations. Uh, The effect of that sort of intense focus on the best eating meant that those species were rapidly diminished and once it began to feel as though your expenditure of effort for reward was getting a bit tough, you'd up sticks and move on. Now the peninsula is home to at least one and possibly as many as three of such base camps, which is interesting in such a small area that it has this sort of intensity of use. My supposition has been that Māori used the harbour rather as they elsewhere did at the Waitaki and other rivers, Shag River Mouth. They travelled up the harbour as though it were a river, and indeed it was called the river by Māori and whalers later. And if you look at a dot map of the South Island or of the Otago Coast more, more peninsula, uh, where each dot represents an archaeological site, the peninsula is virtually covered in these dots, suggesting that there was several large settlements at various points and then irradiating around, around those lots of little sites where they would have gone for particular reasons to harvest some particular resource. Is it fair to say that it didn't take very long for them to hunt down the numbers of things like moa, the seals, like all the, the easy pickings basically got picked over pretty quickly. No, not long at all. And that has been true of uh, wherever we have looked around the world where people have arrived in a place that the low-hanging fruit disappear extremely fast. Uh, so even though we're not talking about a large population and a population that doesn't have a wide range of technology 
the extermination of those large animals happened extremely quickly. Um, probably in many areas really too quickly for anyone to reflect on what was going on. Now, breeding seal colonies, that's to say, of New Zealand fur seals, completely disappear from Northland, where they were once, all the way down to the Otago coast by the point at which uh, the first European, Euro-American sealers arrive uh, at the turn of the 18th, 19th century. Now, the archaeology isn't precise on the peninsula on this point, but it seems as though on the outer edges of the peninsula and on the rock stacks and islands in the surrounding coast, there were surviving breeding seal colonies, or at least sealers, European sealers thought it worth their while to stay there during the summer breeding season, drop off their gangs and harbour seals, and they retrieved some few thousands of, of seal pelts. So that has always suggested to me that there must have been surviving seal colonies. There is a real question... Uh, if seals persisted on and around the peninsula right up until sealers arrived over several hundred years, then was this because of uh, the low population density of Māori in and around that area and because it was quite hard to get at some of those offshore rock stacks where seals may have been able to survive? And on balance, I think that's probably where I would lay most weight of explanation but I would still leave room for some uh, effort, conscious effort, made by Māori to no longer cull seals at such a rate that they would leave themselves no more for succeeding years. So how had Māori culture evolved so that by the time the first Europeans turned up, what did they find on the peninsula? Several settlements of Māori in close proximity to one another on the peninsula itself, uh, both at the harbour mouth and on the outer coast, those settlements consisting of an intermingling of people who uh, whakapapad to both the first arrivals in the south, uh, Tarapuwai, Waitaha, and to Katimamoi, and to the more recent arrivals, the Kaitahu Hapu, who had come south um, some few centuries earlier. Those people had learnt to sustain themselves in a way in a way analogous to how they had lived when they first arrived, having a base camp, and then a, a really wide range of places that those people would go to during the warmer months particularly to get the resources that would sustain them year-round, are people who had an extraordinary knowledge of the broader landscape of Tiwaiponamu or the the Greenstone Island, and whose mobilities uh, reflected that, and whose kin networks reflected that. And the first Europeans to take up settlement on the peninsula was that the whalers and the sealers. Well, the sealers are a f- sort of flash in the pan, if you like. They come, they go. So eighteen ten or so. The first substantial European inhabitation of the peninsula comes with the arrival of the Wellers whaling station, the Weller Brothers whaling station. The Wellers were shore whalers uh, who operated, as it, as it seems, from shore and sent the boats out each day from the shore itself. Set up in the early years of the 1830s and uh, a whaling station out at Otako, which is just inside the, on the inner tip, 
the lee of the peninsula, uh, right in the midst of the Maori communities there. And they rapidly form a sort of quite symbiotic relationship where the whalers who are uh, coming out of Sydney, bringing Sydney capital to bear on providing ships and equipment and a labour force. Māori joined that labour force in, in great numbers. Māori women uh, provided a great deal of uh, economic impetus to the station by growing a lot of the station's food, growing a lot of uh, food for trade, uh, particularly potatoes. This symbiotic relationship between Māori and Sydney Capital uh, was really successful for a short while in generating a great deal of life. Um, a bustling town sprang up really, um, not out of nowhere because I say it was embedded in these pre-existing Māori communities, but Māori flocked from up and down the coast to the port and the whaling station that was created. There was a store there. The, the whalers, uh, like uh, Māori before them, very quickly uh, killed off the whales, or at least to the extent that it was no longer economically uh, sustainable to continue whaling in the area. And then there's another phase of settlement on the peninsula in the second half of the the 1800s. Can you just summarise that for me? The arrival of organised European settlement predicated on owning the land, transforming the land, and the success of that culture, that settling culture, and making the peninsula in just 50 years a pretty close realisation of what they'd first wanted to achieve when they stepped ashore, really tight-knit communities based on church and school uh, springing up all over the peninsula, serviced by, though a never-ending series of complaint about them, a reasonable network of roads, uh, the same roads we still have today. Very few roads have been built. My book's title is The Face of Nature, and I drew that phrase in part from... Uh, a remark made by uh, George Malcolm Thompson, who was a um, leading natural scientist of the day, who'd observed this sort of change uh, over the decades since he arrived in Dunedin in the early 1870s. And he came to the conclusion, as he put it, that the whole face of nature had been altered because not only had you seen a shift from trees and ferns to grass, but... All of the bird life had changed. There were very few surviving native birds. The bird life was that of the old land, as he thought of it. The insects had completely changed. And New Zealand pasture land by this point really had very little surviving native biota at all. There was just almost nothing that resembled what had been there before. All the significant transformations had taken place by 1900 when I finished my research. The land had been cleared. An economy based on uh, dairy farming had been very well established. Uh, all of the villages and small communities were well established. Māori were clinging on, you would have to say, to their land base on the northern end of the peninsula, which remained integral to the Māori community in Otago more broadly and, and does so today. And since then, the peninsula has really seen a retreat from the outer edges of the peninsula so that while on the one hand the bays have become more and more intensely settled by suburbanites who travel into Dunedin, the land itself has emptied out. People have walked off the land so that now it only sustains a few functional farms. 
most of whose money seems to be made from fleecing tourists who pay to peep at penguins rather than fleecing sheep. Thanks, Jonathan. Jonathan West is the author of The Face of Nature, an environmental history of the Otago Peninsula. It's published by Otago University Press. The book is one of the non-fiction finalists in the 2018 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. The winners will be announced next week in Auckland. Kate Fakaronga Maikwe Kito Tato Al Horihuri, He Hotaka E Panaki Tato Al Fanui. I'm Alison Balance, and you're with Our Changing World on RNZ National. And now, an international team of geologists set sail this week on board the deep sea research ship, the Joides Resolution. The ship is operated by the International Ocean Drilling Programme. It's specially designed to drill into the seafloor and retrieve cores of the rocks and sediments. The ship and varying teams of about 30 or so scientists have already completed four two-month-long expeditions around New Zealand and Antarctica. This week, Expedition 376 headed off along the Kermadec Arc, which runs northeast from New Zealand towards Tonga. Expedition leaders Cornel de Ronde from GNS Science and Susan Humphreys from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution have their eyes set on Brothers Volcano. Brothers is a massive submarine volcano known for its hydrothermal vents, which include hot springs and tall chimneys known as black smokers. I visited the ship in port in Auckland at the weekend to find out what Susan and Cornell are planning to do between now and early July. We are going to be drilling uh, several holes at Brothers and uh, all going well, we'll come back with some core that's um, never been recovered from a hydrothermal active volcano before. So tell me a bit about Brothers Volcano, where is it, how big is it? Brothers Volcano is about 400 kilometres um, northeast of Whakatane. It's about 8 by 5 on its base. But 8 by 5 kilometres. That's correct. Um, but inside the caldera, it's about uh, 2 by 1. It's about um, three times the size of White Island. So what kind of volcano is the Brothers Volcano and why are you interested in it? It's a type of volcano that you find associated with subduction zones that results from uh, the subduction of one plate beneath the other and the release of water that causes the rocks to melt and creates a volcano. So um, it's an arc volcano which is very different in chemistry from the volcanoes that you find on mid-ocean ridges. The submarine ones, whilst we've known they're there or thereabouts, have never been studied in any real detail, probably until about the last 20 years, um, with respect at least to um, having hydrothermal systems on the seafloor. So that's all pretty new, and as a, this is a direct consequence of about 20 years of research on one particular volcano, where we have mapped it in great detail, we know about all the hot springs there, we know about um, the mineralisation and animals and so on, but something that we don't know about is the third dimension. So what's it going to take to drill down into the volcano? As you probably know, a lot of the technology for drilling was designed for looking for oil, and of course we're drilling into a volcano, which is hard rock, and so we'll be using a couple of technologies, one which is rotary core barrel drilling, which is essentially putting a drill bit on the end of a string and then rotating it, um, which is a technique that is used uh, in sediments, soft rocks as well. But we will also be testing a new technology that's being brought to us by our Japanese colleagues that actually rotates the drill down close to the drill bit so that we can perhaps 
uh, penetrate this very hard rock a little bit faster. It's also going to be a little difficult because there's probably going to be a lot of loose volcanic rock on the top that we're going to have to drill through. And so one technique we'll be using will be something called casing, which is a way of as you drill, you lower a steel pipe into the hole to try to make sure that the hole doesn't collapse. How deep do you hope to drill? Well, we're hoping to drill three different holes at different depths, but the maximum depth we're hoping to get to is about 800 metres. As Susan said, it's a lot of unknowns for us, really. Um, Technologically-wise, it's, it's a bit um, challenging, but also the environment's uh, exceedingly challenging. There are fluid temperatures exiting that volcano at th- over 300 degrees C, so I would suspect it's quite possible that we could have temperatures down there that are near 400 degrees C. But they pump a lot of seawater and so on down, down through the drill string to keep things cool. Some of the fluids that exit on the volcano floor are more acid than that in your car battery. Very corrosive, very hot. The actual rock type might not be so stable. We don't know. So it's going to be quite a challenging expedition, but um, you know, somebody's got to try first and, and wear it. If you're dealing with something that's very hot, then its chemistry might be quite volatile. You're going to be wanting to measure these things as soon as they come up. We do have a a particular sampling device that's uh, fairly unique and it's called a Custer sampling tool and it goes at the end of the drill string and it actually collects about a litre of water or fluid right down at the source of drilling. So, you know, we are drilling right into the guts of a volcano and we have theorised what types of fluids that we may intersect and we're hoping to really intersect a brine or a very salty, very dense fluid that it's more likely to carry metals than other fluids. Since you are drilling on a volcano, is there any risk? Um, there's always risks of getting um, pipes and drill bits stuck, obviously, but um, no, it's not volcanically active, so it's not erupting, but it's hydrothermally active, so it's akin to uh, hot springs that we see on land today, but at the bottom of the sea floor. But because of that great pressure under which they sit, you know, the column of water sitting on top of them, um, those fluid temperatures are, are much higher than what we're used to. So they can be, you know, 300 plus for sure. And that comes with some risk. And if you get drill bits stuck and it's very corrosive, I mean, you know, that might be interesting. But by and large, not really. I think the greatest difficulty is because it's the technical part of drilling through this type of rock. It'll be quite hard in places, it'll be quite soft in places, so it's going to be one for the drillers, but um, we'll see We'll see how they get on. How much of a new frontier is this? Well, in the past 50 years of scientific drilling, there have been probably three other attempts to do this. They have all been on a mid-ocean ridge, so in a slightly different environment and with water depths that have typically been deeper than we're drilling in. And so this is really the first time that we've drilled on a volcano of this type um, that is associated with um, hot springs coming out of the seafloor that are much more acidic and uh, some of them are quite gassy, full of gases. Um, And so it's going to be very different. And it's sort of another end member, if you will, of the different types of submarine hot springs that you find. I would add to that by saying, you know, if you think of plate tectonics as as conveyor belts, um, previously the drilling had been done where those belts start, if you like, or oceanic lithosphere is first produced, and then it's moved all the way along, say, from the East Pacific rise to New Zealand, and it gets subducted. So we're at the other end of the conveyor belt. And as a consequence of that, we make different types of magmas, and as a consequence of that, they have more water or sometimes more metals. And all of that ultimately ends up in these volcanoes and sometimes in these big mineral deposits on the seafloor. 
So we're just looking at the other end, if you like, and um, that's not been done before, to my knowledge. So that always is uh, exciting and intriguing when you do something somebody hasn't done before. Are you expecting to find anything living down there at all? Uh, well, we're hoping to. We have some microbiologists coming who will be looking for life and trying to find out who's living there and what it's doing. Right now, the limit of life is up around 125 degrees centigrade or so. So I don't think we're likely to find anything in the really hot fluids, but it's certainly possible that in the subsurface of this volcano, there are microbiological communities living in, in high temperatures for them, certainly. And, you know, hopefully we'll find some species that have never been discovered before. So does this kind of search have any relevance, and I'm thinking of space, if you were looking for life on other planets? It certainly does. Um, It has relevance in a couple of ways. One is the type of environment we're dealing with, which may be um, akin to something that we might find on another planet. And, of course, the other part of it is that the technology that we are trying to use in remote parts of the deep ocean is the type of technology that you could use on uh, planets with water on them. So this is the type of thing that uh, may have relevance to, to life on other planets. What are you looking forward to most about this expedition? Well, I like being at sea, and um, I like a challenge, and this expedition is certainly high risk. It's certainly going to be a challenge, but I'm very excited to see what we can get up. Uh, I was on a similar expedition um, back in the late 90s uh, to a hydrothermal hot spring um, on mid-ocean ridge and the technology wasn't as advanced then so we had some a lot of difficulties but I'm hoping because of the advances in technology we're going to be very successful on this cruise and get some really beautiful core that will tell us a lot about what's going on in the internal parts of this volcano. For me I've been coming out here for 20 years and uh, I think this is my 12th or 13th expedition and we know quite a lot, as I said previously, what's on the seafloor, but we really don't know anything really what's below the seafloor except from geophysics. So for me, it's intriguing to sort of add that third dimension to all the studies we've done to this point. And I'm hoping that we're going to intersect some wonderful networks of veins that may carry um, different metals like copper and, and gold and so on, because one of our primary objectives is to see what metals are found within this volcano, where are they found and how are they distributed and really how do they move around. So without drilling, uh, ultimately it's pretty tough when you're looking at just the very end of this whole process when you're on the seafloor. So drilling gives us that little insight, so that's what I'm looking forward to. Thanks, Cornell. That was Cornell de Ronde from GNS Science and we also heard Susan Humphreys from the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution in the United States. And we'll feature a story about the previous Joides Resolution expedition to the Hikurangi Plate Boundary off Gisborne in next week's episode of Our Changing World. In the meantime, you can listen to tonight's stories again and check out the photos and web features at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. If you'd like to stay in touch with us, we're on Facebook and Twitter as RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. I'm back next week. But until then, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai tō pō.